Amen. Let's pray together. Holy One, during this time of social distancing and lockdowns due to the COVID-19 pandemic, remind us that we are still connected to one another. And we pray for those impacted by travel bans, the, those unable to connect with loved ones, those who have insurance and those who do not, those who are getting treatment, and all those who cannot get a hospital bed. We pray for all of us who are anxious and afraid. Remind us that we are infinitely connected to you, and we can come to you in prayer at any time, in any setting. Help us to be the body of Christ that you call us to be in this moment. May we be your hands and feet right now in neighborhoods, farms and small towns, hospitals, clinics, tribes, and large cities as we work to safely feed each other, heal each other, look out for each other, and act as your instruments in this ailing world. Be with the very young, school-aged children as they watch this world around them. Guide the healers on each continent, in each country, in each city around the globe, and be with them and each of us as we struggle to navigate new things and new ways. Sustain the researchers, virologists, laboratories, and medical transport teams. All economies around the world have been terribly affected over these past months. We pray for each of the ways it is impacting the small business owners, investors, our elderly, our homeless, the middle class, all of us in vastly varied ways. May we, we rebuild together without rank of who is worthiest, but instead guided by your light and filled with your love, stronger than we can imagine. In this time when we feel far from one another, may we know that you are near, that you draw us near. Help us, even in isolation, to connect, to reach out, to care for each other. And may we not, in, in, in the middle of what feels like just a heavy crisis that, that can bring confusion, can bring distraction in all sorts of different ways, may we not neglect what you call us to, to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, this is a, a first for me, preaching to a pretty empty, empty uh, sanctuary. I, I'm almost literally preaching to the choir. I've got the worship team here, and that's about it. Um, but what we're going to do really quickly, uh, this is usually the part of the service where we tell children to go to the children's space. We aren't going to do that. Uh, but we, we ask you to shake hands and give hugs, and obviously we won't be doing that here. But uh, as awkward as it may feel, I'm going to ask you to just turn to the person next to you. And, you know, we're told by, by the elder John that we're to love one another because love is from God. And so this is a gift that we have, that we have each other, even in this time of isolation, to know that we have these connections. So turn, squeeze somebody's knee, give them a hug. If no one's there with you, take this moment to pray for, for the loved ones in your life that you can't be with right now. And I know that's difficult, but this is an opportunity for us to remember those people, to, to share love and, and express our love to each other. So go ahead and do that. Just like 15 seconds. Don't worry. We'll be right back. All right. We're, we're doing these things because they're important to us. We, we come and sing songs together because we, we feel like this is, it's a value. It's important that we come and worship as a community, even if it's virtually. And it's important that we come and we hear the word. So we're going to do that this morning. Um, let me just pray as we, we dive into this text this morning. Father God, we, we come to you uh, because it's all we know to do. 
We come to you because we trust that in your word there is life, there's truth, uh, that, that gives us wisdom for how, how we can see you moving and working in our worlds in ways that we don't expect. And we ask this morning as we hear the truth about your love for us, God, that it would be a truth that transforms us. And we, we believe that's true because of your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are continuing in our Lent series. We've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and this is a, a text that originally would have all been on one scroll. Um, we've separated into two books, but Ezra and Nehemiah is one scroll. And, and the theme in these books is this idea of returning and rebuilding. The, the people were returning and rebuilding. They, they had been in exile, but now they're coming into the promised land again. God is bringing them back from exile, and, and they have these tasks that they're going to do. And, and Jeff, the last two weeks, has looked at the, the first two. What we see as we look at the scroll as a unit, that actually there's, there's three tasks, and they mirror each other. They, they all go together. And so the first thing they're rebuilding is the temple. And Ezra 1 to 6, we, we see this task being carried out by Zerubbabel and Jeshua and some other people, right? But they're coming to rebuild the temple. And then we see in Ezra 7 through 10, which Jeff covered last week, uh, Ezra comes and, and his job is to, to rebuild this Torah community. He's trying to build the community around the scriptures and, and, and build up this people to be the people of God they were called to be. And then the text that we're going to actually kind of gloss over this morning and get to some other stuff, but Nehemiah 1 to 7 is next, and Nehemiah comes and builds the wall. I know there's a lot of jokes that could be made about a wall being built right now, and I'm just going to put those over here and not, not touch that this morning, right? But they're coming to rebuild these things, the, the temple, the Torah community, and the wall. And, and what we see, these mirror each other because we, we see the same things happening in each of these stories. Uh, after we, we are introduced to these people, we find that they have difficult decisions they have to make in the midst of opposition, right? And in Ezra chapter 4, they're going about rebuilding the temple, and the people from the surrounding land come and say, hey, we want to be a part. We, we want to help. And they have this difficult decision. Do we let the people around help, or is this something that we do on our own? And, and they make the decision not to. In fact, they say, hey, you have no share in Jerusalem. You have no share in this temple. This is our God. We're doing this on our own. And then we look in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. Ezra's come to, to kind of rebuild this Torah community, to teach them how to live in the ways of God, to be the people that God has called them to be. And they discovered that intermarriage has been taking place. The people who had remained behind, hadn't gone into exile, have married the people in the neighboring countries. Some that have come back have started to do that. This is where we see the Samaritans start to be on the scene, is there this mix of the Israelites and the neighboring people. And so there's been this intermarriage going on. And, and they make this decision as they read the text. They say, you know what, we're like Moses and the, the new uh, Israel coming out of Exodus into the land. And God told them not to mix with the Moabites, not to mix with the Amalekites. And we shouldn't be doing that either. They make that decision, and so what they say is, what we have to do is we have to tell all these people who have intermarried to divorce their wives and send home the children. And this is a difficult text, and if you weren't here last week, a lot of people weren't, that's fine. Jeff preached on it. I'm not going to touch on it too much this morning. The sermon is online on our website. You can go listen to that there. I encourage you to. I know you've got a little bit more free time right now, so you can do that. Um, but that's the decision they make. And then in Nehemiah, we, we have a similar one to what was happening when they were building the wall. The pe neighboring people come alongside, and they're not as, as gracious this time. They come and say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you building a wall? Are you trying to rebel? Are you, are you trying to rebel against the king? Because 
we'll tell on you, basically. And, you know, they weren't as gracious as they could have been. <laughs> they, uh, they said pretty much identically what was said earlier in Ezra. Hey, you have no part in Jerusalem. Get out of here. We're building this wall. Get. Which is funny because, I mean, Nehemiah had been sent by the king. He, he really could have just said, hey, actually, it's cool, guys. Artaxerxes sent me. I got a letter right here. This is totally fine. It's on the up and up. But they didn't do that. They, they said, scram. Right? And so these are all the decisions they make when they're faced with opposition. And they lead to questionable results. Right? And... In the first section in Ezra, where they're building the temple, Jeff talked about this two weeks ago, but they, they build the temple and it doesn't have the glory of the former temple. Uh, the, the cloud of smoke, God's glory doesn't descend, there's no fire, and people who had seen the former temple are like, oh, this isn't, this isn't the same thing. And so they've rebuilt this temple, they've made some tough decisions, and the results are questionable. And now they're rebuilding this Torah community and, and they make this decision. And, and we see the same thing in Ezra chapter 10. It, it's just this anti-climax for, for that section of the scroll. You get to Ezra's story. And they say, okay, we need to make all these divorces happen. And everyone kind of says, okay, <laughs> well, it's the rainy season. And we're just all going to head back to our villages. And we'll, we'll take care of this in the, over the coming months. And then the book tells us that some people did and some people didn't. And that's it. It doesn't say, and this was a good thing, or this was a bad thing, or this is what should have happened. It doesn't say anything, and we're just kind of left feeling like, okay, did the Torah community get rebuilt? I'm not sure. And then if you're looking at an outline, we sent it in the email, and you can follow along with the outline. You're, you're welcome to do that. But if you're looking at the outline, I put Nehemiah with question marks as to whether they're questionable results. We, we get to the end of chapter 7. The, the, the wall has been built, and we kind of hit a pause. We, we don't know what else is going to happen. We jump into the chapters that we're into this morning. We're going to be in chapters 8 through 10. Um, and, and we'll deal with the fallout from the, the temple, the, the Torah community, and the wall next week. Uh, chapters 11 and 12 are going to kind of round all that story out with even more anticlimax, which is just, you know, not so satisfying. But this week, taking a pause from, from where the story's been going, and, and chapters 8 and 10 are this break where the people stop and they, they're listening to the law. Ezra comes and he's teaching them. He, he opens the scroll and he begins reading them the law. And we just have to make a clarification because I, I know we hear this and we think, man, that sounds boring, <laughs> right? Listening to the law, I mean, their attention spans must have been a lot better than ours, which they probably were. But... The point is, when we talk about the law, I think we often think this is like going and sitting at city council and they're just going to read the bylaws and I'm just going to sit there and hear all the bylaws, riveting stuff, right? That's not what they're saying. The law is the, the Torah, which the Torah is simply, it's the first five books of what we know as our Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so, yes, there are the Ten Commandments in there. And yes, there are some, some sacrificial laws and things like that. But I mean, open your Bible and look, Genesis, it's, it's full of these stories of, of who God has been for his people, right? And so they're listening to the Torah. That they're, they're doing more than just listening and hearing laws. So we're going we're gonna to read chapter 8. I'm going to read chapter 8 right now. Feel free to read along or to just listen, and then we'll look at some excerpts from chapter 9. But I want to give you a sense for what, what they're doing. 
So I'll start right before chapter eight. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a bunch of names that I'm not going to try to say right now, or this video will probably go viral with the mistakes I make. Then Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, truth, truth. And they bowed down and worshiped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. The Levites, again, more names I'm not going to trouble with this morning. They instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to Yahweh your God. Don't mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Don't grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which Yahweh had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the feast of the seventh month, and they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, as it's written. So people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole country, that, the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. We'll pause right there. We'll touch on that assembly and, and what, what else happens in this book. But we, we get a sense for what they've done, that they've come together as a community to, to listen to Ezra reading the law, and, and Ezra's, Ezra's reading it, and, and the scribes, the Levites, they're, they're teaching it, they're explaining it to the people so they can get this sense. And what we need to, to grasp from this is what, what listening to the law, what sitting under the Torah is doing for these people who, who have returned from exile, who are, are trying to rebuild, and, and, and they're not seeing everything come together the way that maybe they had hoped. The first thing listening to the Torah is doing for them is it, it communicates their story. It communicates their story to them. And, and we see it really in chapter 9, which I, which I haven't read, but it's this prayer of confession that they pray where they're echoing back everything they've heard from Ezra. 
right? That they're confessing to God and they're saying, God, you are Yahweh who chose Abram. This is in verse 7. Then you skip down to verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. Down in uh, verse, verse 12. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire. Verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. Verse 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked, didn't obey your commands. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the desert. What they're doing is they're going through this whole story of who they are because they've been hearing it in, in the Torah. It's communicated their story to them. We see it as they, they decide to celebrate this festival of booths, which really booths is meant to commemorate this time of them being in the wilderness and God providing for them. Just as the people were, were in these not permanent houses and in, in these tents and these booths, Israel is going to come and do that and remember who God has been for them and how he met them in the wilderness. And what they're doing is they're learning stories. They're learning a vocabulary. They're learning all these rhythms that remind them of who they are. So sitting under the Torah is communicating a story to them that changes how they act, changes how they encounter God. It does more than that. Because as they hear their story, the other thing that's happened is they've been convicted of sin. Listening to the Torah, it, it convicts us of sin. And, I mean, we can see that in, in chapter 8, portion that I read, right? That they're saying, uh, the scribes are saying to the people, don't mourn or weep for all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. They're saying, don't grieve. It's not just, they're, they're not weeping for joy. Like, oh, we finally get to hear these words. They're, they're weeping because they're, they're hearing who God is and what he's done for them and, and what their forefathers and they have done in response. That they're, they're convicted of their sin. And we see it later in verse uh, 33 of chapter 9, the end of their prayer of confession. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully. Well, we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, all of them, they didn't follow your law. We rebelled. We didn't pay, pay attention to your warnings. It's convicted them of sin. And this language around sin and conviction, I think, can get a little dicey. We can feel like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I just want to make something really clear. I think here, here's a confession of my own about, you know, one of my, my poor moments as a parent. And I hate to confess, it's not just one moment, it's, it's happened multiple times. But one thing that I've struggled with as a parent is there are times when I find myself trying to make my kids feel bad for something that they don't feel bad about, or they don't feel bad enough about it, right? I feel like they've done something wrong and they don't get it. They think it's fine. What's the big deal? And I want them to feel bad about it. And I think we sometimes think that's what God's trying to do with us. He's just a killjoy right? We've done bad things and we don't feel bad. And God's like, you should feel bad. Read the Bible, then you'll feel bad. And I don't think that's what's meant here. Because if you look at, at the Israelites, and you can go through and read this prayer, but their language around it, it, it's not, you know, God, we did these little small things and they were all really wrong things. Instead, they talk about how their fathers have rebelled against God how they've turned their back on, them, on God, how they've been idolatrous. And I think that is the bigger picture of sin that the Bible is trying to help us see. It's not, hey, you know, stop lying and, and stop saying bad words. And I mean, those are things, but those come out of an, an attitude of rebellion and idolatry. It's when we begin to worship something other than God that those things be, become attractive. Those things begin to look like the way we should live as opposed to what God has invited us into. We see when, when we're being convicted of sin, it's not you should stop doing 
XYZ. It's you should be living for God and this relationship that God has for you. He's been faithful to the covenant and, and we haven't been. That's what they're being called to. That's the sin they're being convicted of. But thankfully it doesn't end there. Because if we listen to Torah, it's not just about hearing how bad they are, but the Torah, it comforts our fears. We see it most clearly in chapter 8 when Nehemiah says to the people who are, who are weeping as they listen to the words of the law, he says, go, enjoy some choice food and sweet drinks. This day is sacred to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. That word strength is the same word you would use for a refuge, for a strong tower. The, the joy of Yahweh is it's your refuge. It's your safe place. You're taken care of in there. And, and this is so helpful because if we just think that all the Bible wants to do, all God wants to do is convict us of sin, I don't want anything to do with that. That's a scary place. But if what we hear is actually, no, it's not just to convict of sin, but to comfort our fears. There, there's no punishment. I mean, God does punish sin. And we see that. That's what they're praying in this prayer of confession. God, you've done these things. But in the end of it, they see, they say in verse 32, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. God has kept his covenant of love despite what they have done. He only does that because he, the joy of the Lord is their strength. It's not their ability to keep the law. It's not their ability to keep the covenant that is their strength. What's their strength? It's the joy of Yahweh. It's his inexplicable delight in his people. That's where their strength is found. It's not in their ability to, to build up this temple community correctly, to, to get the, the Torah community right, or, or to have a wall for their, for their city. None of that is where they're going to find God's delight. God delights simply in them, and that is where their strength is found. And as they listen to the law, one other thing becomes really clear to them. It confirms their need for a covenant. Confirms their need for a covenant. That Israel is a covenant people. God has made a covenant with Abram. And most, most starkly in chapter 15 of Genesis where Abram cuts these animals in half. God's instructing him to do that. And the idea is you pass through these animals and you're saying, may the same thing happen to me. May I be cut in two if I don't keep this covenant. Abram does that, but he doesn't pass through the animals. He passes out. And God, in a vision, as Abram's passed out, passes through, effectively saying, I will keep this covenant. Right? Moses is at Mount Sinai, and, and they, they have this covenant. They have the Ten Commandments. It's, it's basically a, a wedding ceremony. Will, will the people of Israel be faithful to God? So Israel understands they need this covenant. Covenant's all about right relationship, and they have not been in right relationship with God. And so they, they pray this great prayer of confession, and then they, they end chapter 9 with this. They say, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then they have half of chapter 10 is pretty much just the names of the people who are putting their names on this, this binding agreement. And says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, all of us, we're all binding ourselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of Yahweh, our Lord. And we say, oh, it's great. They've got a covenant. It's all good now. Except we know this story. 
right? I mean, even if you don't know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've heard the story before, right? Because we've, we've seen an exodus. We've seen the, the people of Israel not keeping their covenant. And we know humans, humans break covenants. We, we know right away hearing this, it's nice, it's a good sentiment, but I mean, it's not worth the sheepskin that it's printed on, right? They're not going to be able to keep this covenant. And that's what we're going to get into next week as we look at chapters 11 and 12. But I think this, this leads us to a place where we just have to ask the question, what does this mean for us as we, you know, Peter talks about us being exiles, being strangers, uh, sojourners. And I think often in Lent, especially, we want to focus on this idea of being an exile, of being those who are striving to, to live in the kingdom of God, who want to experience that. But if, if we're honest, we don't always. We don't always know what that looks like, and, and we, we don't always feel like we're experiencing that. And that brings these feelings of exile. That brings these feelings of separation. And so I want to talk briefly just about our need in exile. I think we have a few needs that this text can, can really help us to, to understand. And the first is our need to hear our story. We need to be hearing our story, and, and Scripture is a great way to do that. You know, in 2 Timothy, Paul, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, training. All Scripture. That means we come to a, a strange text like Nehemiah, and, and we can read this, and we can learn more of who God is. There's wisdom in here for us to understand the God that we're worshiping. And, and more than that, I mean, in Deuteronomy, right? Moses. Is telling the people, hey, these commandments that I'm giving you, these, these stories of who God has been for us in the wilderness, what he's done for us, I, I want these to be on your lips. I want them to be in your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you come and go, right? When you lie down, when you get up, as you walk along the road, what, whatever you're doing, I, I want them on your doorpost. I want them on your foreheads. When your children ask, hey, why do we do this? Or, hey, where, where do we come from? Remind them of who God has been, of how he separated the Red Sea of how he led us on dry land. Tell these stories because we need to hear our story. And so one, one place for that is, is scripture. Another way scripture works there is, is as we hear our story, as we begin to hear our story in scripture, we can look at a guy like David. And instead of thinking, you know, David was an okay guy. And then, you know, I guess he murdered a guy to cover up his affair. <laughs> You know, we, we can look at that and think, oh, what is God doing there? But we can also look and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. I've gone some pretty great lengths to cover up my sin. Or we can look at Paul, or we can look at Saul, King Saul, and we can say, what an arrogant king. What, what, I mean, he wouldn't slow down. He just thought he could do it all himself, and he wasn't trusting God. And we say, yeah, I've, I've done that. <laughs> I've, I've thought that I knew exactly what I should be doing, and I've rushed into it, and I haven't slowed down, and I haven't waited for God. We look, look at a guy like Abram, and, and we can look at his story and, and begin to see how he is misusing and mistreating the people around him to try to secure the blessing of God, uh, a servant girl, and, and lying about his wife, doing all these things instead of simply trusting. And we say, yeah, I've become so singularly focused on something that I've ignored the people around my life, and, and I haven't paid attention to them and, and looked to be a blessing to them. I've just tried to receive the blessings of God. This is what hearing our story can do. 
if we allow scripture to speak to us in that way. We also need to hear each other's stories. We need to, we need to come together and share our stories. And guys, again, I know you've got time right now. You know, you're about to probably have lunch here in a little bit. Take some time around the table to share a story. A story of, of when God has been faithful in your life. You can share your testimony. You can share a story of someone who's a, a hero of the faith for you. But we need to share these stories because they speak truth to us. Not, not just these outside, you know, these concrete truths about who God is that they do, but they speak a deeper truth of God's faithfulness in our lives. We need to hear our stories. And, and as we do that, we, we have a need for confession. We have a need for confession. It's not enough to, to hear the story of King David and then see, oh, yeah, that's, that's me, and then just move on. I know this can sound awkward because, you know, we're not going to go in booths and confess to each other, and we're not Catholic, and you're like, I, what do you mean confession? The Bible tells us confession is good. I mean, go and read James 5. Go read 1 John. Confession is good for us. And I'm not saying you got to come confess to me or Jeff. We're happy to talk with you. We're happy to pray with you. And that's, that's fine. But we talk about confession. First off, confession is just saying what's true, right? When we confess something, we're saying the truth. And so say the truth about yourself. Be able to confess, yeah, that is me. That, that, that person that scripture is talking about that's revealing that, that is me. And then the, the next part of confession is confessing that to God. Coming to God and saying, God, you, you know who I am, and, and you've seen all this. And it's when we do that that we're able to experience not just the conviction of our sin, but to feel the joy of his delight in us, that that is our strength. We have that need for confession so that we can, instead of always running from our sin, we can expose it and then feel the forgiveness that comes with that. And that's why the, the third part of confession, and, and this can be hard, but Find someone that you can share that with. Find someone that you can be open about that with. We, we often, you know, right now we're, we're in this enforced isolation. We like to isolate ourselves anyway, don't we? We have these private parts that I'll show this part, but I don't want to show these other parts. And especially the parts that we're ashamed of, the, the parts that we know we should confess. And it's because we like to be able to hide in those places. We like to go to those shadowy places. I just want to encourage you. That, that to, to bring that place out, to shine some light on that to somebody else. Say, hey, this is a place that I like to hide. And I, I want to show this to you in hopes that I, I can't really hide there anymore. It's what confession can do for us. And as we're living in exile and often not feeling at home, that can give us a place of home, that connection that we have with one another. But ultimately, as we talk about our need in exile, I think our, our greatest need is our need for a covenant keeper our need for someone to keep that covenant. We talk about covenants and there there are these these promises, these oaths around relationship. And we can look and we can say, yeah, our relationship with God has been broken because of our sin, because of all these things. But scripture is really clear to us that, that that is not the case in Jesus. We have needed someone to keep the covenant. And it's that image from, from uh, Genesis 15, from Abram, not passing through, but God passing through those animals. And saying, may I be broken if I don't keep this covenant. May I be broken if you don't keep this covenant. God is the one who passes through. And God is the one who is faithful. And God is the one who is broken on the cross for us. To be faithful to the covenant. To keep that 
relationship. In Isaiah, we have a, a song of the servant. And these are, these are poems that are written about Israel, but even more so about a, a representative of Israel because Israel has not been able to be what God has called them to be. And, and we look at these texts and we, and we think that these, are, these are talking about the Messiah. These are talking about Jesus. In verse 5 of chapter 42, it says, This is what Yahweh God says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all, and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Did you catch that? He doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a covenant for the people, right? He says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. Jesus himself is the covenant. Jesus himself is the one who binds us in relationship to the Father. And this, this to me just puts an exclamation point on what Nehemiah has said to the people. Don't grieve for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. We no longer have to be slaves to fear. We can come and we can hear our story. We can be reminded of what's true about us. We can confess that to, to God, to one another. And we can know that even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of trying to see what the kingdom of God looks like and failing on a daily basis, that our strength is not in our ability to do it. Our strength is not in our ability to fake it. Our strength is in the inexplicable joy of Yahweh, that he delights in us, that he dances over us, that he has died for us and offers us new life in him. My prayer for you, that as we continue to walk through Lent, as we continue to do this social isolation, that you would know that love and that, that love would transform you into someone who experiences God's abundant life every day. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that these words are true. God, that as we listen to your word, that it tells us something about who we are. It tells us something of who you are. God, that we hear the truth about ourselves, that we aren't stuck with that, but instead, God, we are, we're told that you delight in us. That the truth about us is that we are your children. That our, that our exile, that our sin has been paid for. We aren't slaves to fear anymore. We aren't slaves to condemnation, but we are children, beloved children of God. God, as we, as we sing to you now, God, may you just confirm that in our hearts. Help us to know that love, to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.